and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur. And Cam, I think this week an adventure is just beginning. And ending. (laughs) (laughs) Because this week we are going to tackle... Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins, the uh, action, espionage, uh, comedy, I don't know, it's a whole bunch of things in one. It's a uh, basically a 1985 motion picture starring Fred Ward and Joel Grey. Yeah, I don't think this film knows what it wants to be, but we'll get into that. But first, everyone's favorite, the letterbox.com synopsis. Away we go. Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. A hero who doesn't exist must save America from an enemy he never knew he had. An officially dead cop is trained to become an extraordinarily unique assassin in the service of the US president. Not bad. I think that actually sums it up well. A lot of the time when you do these cult movies, um, the person writing the synopsis gets a little too invested and goes down some weird rabbit holes. But this one, I think that sums it up pretty good. For a film that's all over the place, the synopsis is pretty on point. That's right. That's right. Now, I am curious, Scott. This movie's called The Adventure Begins in North America, but you had a different title, right? Yeah, apparently so. I mean, I, I hadn't seen it in the cinema or ever heard of it. But looking at it on IMDb, apparently in the UK, it was called Remo, Unarmed and Dangerous. What do you think is the better title? Uh, I, I have two answers to that question. At the time, I think The Adventure Begins sounds cool. But knowing that the adventure never continued, I go with Unarmed and Dangerous. I think you've got to mash the two together, though, because I think you want Remo Williams, not just Remo. But I think Unarmed and Dangerous is a far better description of what makes this character unique. Don't you think Unarmed and Dangerous just sounds like a sort of naked gun film? Kind of, but this movie... Well, we'll get to it. This movie definitely treads into Naked Gun territory a fair amount of the time. Just not as good as Naked Gun does. No, no, of course not. Nothing does it as well as Naked Gun. Naked Gun is the finest motion picture in the history of motion pictures. Uh, No, I definitely hadn't seen this in the cinema because I wasn't born yet and I had no experience of it. But Cam, anything from you? Um, I would have been about four years old probably when this came out and I feel like my parents weren't eager to take me to Remo Williams the adventure begins when I was four (laughs) I mean it's the perfect age to understand this film it is um (laughs) but it is one that I just kept seeing the name kind of float about over the years I mean I watch a lot of you know cult films but I just had never seen this and um it was one that I would see it pop up on message boards or you'd see, um, I think Joe Blow did a article a handful of years ago about how it's like one of the uh, really fun movies you haven't seen sort of thing. And so it's one that I was always kind of aware of. I knew it was not a box office hit, but I knew that it did have a certain amount of fandom around it. it this is definitely one of the ones that I've discovered for the podcast. Mm, I don't know right. if that's for the better or not. <laughs> well, we'll get into that. But um yeah, Cam, this film has two titles, which is bizarre in itself. But I mean, what else can you tell me about it? Okay, so yeah, because it's the type of movie that when you watch it, you're like, how, how did this happen? Like, because and you know, that's not even a qualitative thing, because there's movies like Buckaroo Banzai, for example, another cult film. When you watch it, you're just literally like, how did this movie happen? This is insane. Like, who who signed these checks? 
Um, that was kind of what I was wondering about Remo Williams. So basically what happened was a lot of the execs who worked for United Artists during the James Bond era left and went to go work for Orion Films. And Orion was really eager to launch their own franchise that would rival 007. <laughs> On a nice note, I can see why they want to do that. Like an American 007. Makes perfect sense. It does make sense. I mean, they pitched it as red, white, and blue collar Bond. Not bad. It's actually a better hook than what I read earlier. Yeah, and so they wanted to adapt the Destroyer novel series by Warren Murphy and Richard Sapir. Um, the original uh, Destroyer novel, which Remo Williams is the character's name in those novels. It's not like a Harry Palmer situation. Um, the original novel came from uh, 1971, and it was called Created the Destroyer. Now, this series has been going quite a while. I want to know, Scott, could you guess how many Remo Williams Destroyer novels there are? Well, if this is An Adventure Begins and Fred Ward is clearly in his 40s in this, I'm going to have to say like 20 books before the guy dies. Okay, so 20 is your, your guess? Yeah. Okay, well, there's actually over 150. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Remo Williams is one of the most prolific characters in American literature, it would seem. <laughs> Move over Mark Twain. You fucking no. Remo Williams here. Yeah, that, I, I, when I read that, I was like, that's insane. So there's like 153 novels, and then there's some like um, sort of anthology books. There's um, manuals in terms of the um, <laughs> martial art used in this film. There's like all these spin-off projects tied to the Destroyer universe. I can just see the uh, United Artists slash Orion Pictures office when someone pitched this. Like, guys... There's 150 books. We've got yeah. gold for a lifetime. Your grandkids will be going to Princeton. Yeah, like they are having to create new James Bond films pretty soon. You know, their View to a Kill is coming out in the same year as Remo Williams. And I mean, they don't know what that movie is like based on because, you know, at that point, they've run out of Ian Fleming novels. So we will not have that problem. We have 150 plus Remo Williams adventures. Everyone lights a cigar and is like, <laughs> money. <laughs> the sequel to this one would have been called Remo Williams, The Never-Ending Story. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I can understand why they went down this route. Makes perfect sure. sense. And they've obviously, the book series obviously works because you have 150. You must have had people reading them. You must. Although I, I do have questions as to how big the readership is or they're kind of just pulp novels that are cranked out like, you know, every six months kind of thing. What do you think about like Game of Thrones? Before the TV series came along, I read some of the books, but not all of them, but it wasn't that popular. You couldn't say like, hey, you know, do you know who Daenerys is to your hairdresser? Sure. Or also, um, you know, we are both Star Trek fans and there are an endless amount of Star Trek novels, whether it's, you know, TNG novels, original series novels. And obviously they sell well enough to continue um, them being cranked out on the regular, but I don't think they are, you know, cracking the top 10 book sales lists on the New York Times. Hey, you leave Bill Shatner's Captain's Trilogy alone. <laughs> well, that one aside. If it's, <laughs> if it's Shatner, it's gold. <laughs> That's what he says. It wins the annual literary prize. I can't remember what it's called. I don't know. The Bookie? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, like, issued by William Shatner himself. 
Oh, that too. He founded it and rewards himself every year. <laughs> Never mind his ghostwriters. Yeah. So uh, the producers of this movie, they wanted Bond credentials tied to this thing. And so they hired Guy Hamilton, the director of such Bond films as Goldfinger, The Man with the Golden Gun, Live and Let Die, and Diamonds Are Forever. And they got writer Christopher Wood, who wrote The Spy Who Loved Me and Moonraker. Like, they were going whole hog into the Bond world. They wanted that pedigree. They really thought, okay, we put these two talents together. We have the next 007 series. So you're telling me the director of this did, like, Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, and the writer wrote Moonraker and The Spy Who Loved Me. Yeah. Uh, Okay, just for, for reference, listeners... This isn't one of those shows where I just pretend to learn information. I don't do the research before this. I genuinely have to hear this information for the first time from Cam. Yeah. This is this is amazing. How on earth? Why is this film the way it is? I don't know. And I, I look forward to talking about Guy Hamilton, the director, going into this episode. Because I think there's actually a conversation to be had about the films of Guy Hamilton. We have covered him before. He actually did Funeral in Berlin. Hmm. So... You know, that's like 20 years before this movie. Um, At this point in his career, he was mostly doing um, like mystery adaptations. He did The Mirror Cracked, which was a Miss Marple um, film. He also had done Evil Under the Sun, which was an Agatha Christie Poirot mystery. So his career had kind of, I don't want to say wound down, but it was kind of in a little bit of a quieter place because this is a guy who, um, you know, a decade before Remo Williams is very strongly being considered. And actually, I think he actually may have gotten the job to direct the original Superman and had to drop out at the last minute. So like, he's not quite at that blockbuster Helmer, you know, kind of position that he was earlier in his career. So Guy Hamilton almost did Superman. He did, yeah. Whoa. Yeah, whole other world, right? Yeah. Uh, well, but hey, at least we got Remo Williams. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and and you know the uh that Superman his adventure ended whereas Remo Williams it's still going. <laughs> we're we're keeping it alive. That's right. So when it came to casting Remo Williams, um again, you are casting an icon in theory. So you really want to embrace I guess the character and find the perfect actor. We can talk about whether they found the right one, but a couple people considered Um, A very young Bruce Willis was considered, and at this point he was kind of a nobody, so he did not get the job. And Ed Harris was also considered. Um, Well, both of those guys I think would have contributed something that, well, I don't know if it would have improved the movie, I don't know, but I mean, you have Ed Harris, there's a certain amount of legitimacy, especially. I'm not really familiar with Fred Ward and his uh, catalogue of work to really take a punt on that i don't know if he has been in loads of films that i haven't seen but i know ed harris and i definitely know bruce willis yeah like fred ward is one of those guys when you actually look up his imdb he's been in like everything you've ever seen but the two movies that i always thought of were the original tremors um he's also in the sequel but the original tremors he's fantastic in it's such a fun movie and then he was also in the third naked gun film naked gun 33 and a third the final insult. He was the villain Rocco and he's really funny in that movie as well. So he's a long working actor. I think he's maybe retired now. Um, he's approaching 80 years old, but um, you know, he's one of those guys. He's very reliable. I mean, that makes him what, 40 in this film came out late thirties. Yeah. 
Yeah, kind of, I mean, I guess that is sort of that James Bond casting age, right? Like, yeah. usually the Bond actors are around that age. I mean, how old was Daniel Craig? Um, I think he was like maybe 37 or something. Sounds about right. Yeah. So, um, when it came time to cast the character of Chian, who is um, Rima Williams' um, I guess master, I don't know, trainer, um, they this character in the movie, and we'll be talking about this in depth, uh, is a Korean character, and they, quote-unquote, couldn't find an Asian actor for the role, Scott. Huh. There was none. None. Hmm. Okay. 1985, no Asian actors whatsoever. I'm, I'm not buying that, buddy. I'm not buying that. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of Asian actors, and um, obviously, like, uh, even if you want to go outside of Korean actors, because, boy, in 1985, they sure would have, uh, the fact that they're saying they couldn't find an Asian actor, period, is absurd. And so instead, they approached Joel Grey. Um, best known for the movie Cabaret, which he won a Best Supporting Actor uh, Oscar for. Um, Joel Grey turned down the role initially for fear of offending the Korean population. But <laughs> um, they brought in uh, makeup artist Carl Fullerton, who is a very well-established makeup guy. He worked on Silence of the Lambs. He's also Denzel Washington's personal makeup artist in pretty much all of his movies for the last couple decades. Um, they brought Carl Fullerton in to show how they could apply prosthetics to Joel Grey to make him look like a Korean man. And he was so won over by the makeup, he realized he could probably pull it off. Look, we talk about like the behind the scenes stuff, but this is irredeemable. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this did get a Golden Globe nomination for Best Supporting Actor. Like, we will have in the future of this podcast, we've already tackled the yellow face um, concept in um, Dr. No, which mm -hmm. had it as well. But this movie really doubles down. And I, I was genuinely shocked to be tackling a movie from 1985 where it was so prominent. Like it's the sort of thing when you see it in Breakfast at Tiffany's, you roll your eyes and you go like, what was in the water in, in the 1960s? Mm -hmm. I really, I, I didn't know about this going into this movie. And I was genuinely shocked in a movie in 1985. It was so prominent. And also that it was, while very controversial, often embraced. It was so weird. Well, look, as you say, we've tackled it already. I mean, we've got You Only Live Twice coming at some point this year. Mm-hmm. That's yep. that's got its own problems, and I'm not going to not talk about this character. I'm going to delete him from my you know memory of the film. But we have to make a point that this is, I mean, there's no way that this should be allowed, even in '85, even in '65. They should have found an appropriate actor, even if it took longer, and this shouldn't have ever happened. Simple. Cast an unknown. Just sure. cast an unknown. Yeah. If you if you can't find an Asian actor in Hollywood, which seems unlikely find someone like, you know, create a new star. You know, that's something that like they did when it came time to casting. Um, I think of Cato in the green Hornet film with Seth Rogen, the actor they got Jay Chow was not known at all in North America, but was well-established um, back in his homeland. And why not transport a new talent over? Like, again, I, I know I'm arguing with 1985 Hollywood and maybe that's insane unto itself, but Yeah. Well, the other problem is, is unfortunately, this stuff still kind of happens now. It does. Yeah, it's going to happen, I think, less and less, though. But you can see even in like a movie like, you remember Doctor Strange? Where I was just going to mention that film, exactly. 
yeah, where you had the um, the ancient one who was an Asian man in the comic books, and Marvel was obviously rightly concerned about having a stereotypical Asian character in their movie, went the Tilda Swinton route, and still there was a lot of blowback over that about whitewashing a character. It's an issue that is going to be grappled with a lot of adaptations, I think, of of older material. I know they talk about doing, say, like a Flash Gordon movie in the future. Well, like you've got Ming the Merciless in there. Um, it's going to be an ongoing battle, but movies like this, boy, have they not aged well. No, this this is, as I said, damning at any point. But if you think about it, it's 85. They should have been beyond this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And it also has that kind of anti-Asian sentiment as well, which was very prominent in Hollywood films of a certain era as well. Yeah, there's a few jokes in there that are sort of aimed exactly as that. I mean, you could say there's jokes aimed the other way from him, but shouldn't be happening but hey ho yeah so um some other production notes i'll mention um the production ran out of money at a certain point and so the finale which was supposed to be a big over-the-top explosive action sequence got really downgraded and i think that's fairly telling as well you'll notice it i think when you watch the movie um a couple other things uh fred ward apparently did 50 percent of his own stunts that seems like the kind of number you throw out there to the press but i go 50 percent well, that's probably none of the dangerous stuff whatsoever. <laughs> no, like he's harnessed to that log, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, sure. maybe, sure. And Dick Clark um, was a producer on this film, and the only way they got the Statue of Liberty shooting done was he agreed to appear in a Statue of Liberty uh, public service announcement, um, and that secured the shooting rights. Who? Uh, Dick Clark was actually a big icon, I guess, over in North America and primarily America. He hosted the New Year's Eve um, countdown every year. Um, he was known as America's oldest teenager. Uh, he died a couple years ago, but he was kind of like that, um, uh, kind of like a Carson Daly figure of his era or um, Ryan Seacrest of his era. Who? Okay, well, these are like. <laughs> do you know? You know? Uh, do you not know who Ryan Seacrest is? Uh, it's a name I like hear in pop culture, but I don't. I don't think I could pick him out of a lineup. Okay, it doesn't translate. Okay, yeah. I mean, he's just one of those big. I don't know what your equivalent would be. He's like the big sort of MC guy. Shows up, does a lot of like music countdown shows, appears doing interviews elsewhere. It's just kind of that um, public figure interviewer type, broadcaster type. For the British listeners. By all means, message us what you think is the equivalent. I would say it's Anton Deck. Okay, cool. Yeah, same kind of idea, probably. Candace know who they are. Yeah. So the, Dick Clark was like the legend of his era. And okay. So he, it, when I saw his name in the producer credits, I did think that was a little strange. So the only reason they had him in is so they so they could get the Statue of Liberty stuff in. He must have had some sort of like rights tied into the book or something. But yeah, that was just how he got that Statue of Liberty shooting done. He's not typically a movie producer, though. America's oldest teenager. Yeah. It's such a weird title. Anyway. <laughs> That's my nickname as well now. <laughs> like, you're America's oldest man. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> so, as for the box office, this movie, Scott, I'm going to give you some com- comparison. Released in 1985, Back to the Future comes out. Big hit, right? Mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. movie... That movie cost $19 million, okay? So, you know, when we talk about budgets, sometimes it's tough because people go, well, movies cost $150 million nowadays. 
So I'm sure they cost that then. Um, no, <laughs> 19 million was, you know, not a huge cost for Back to the Future, but, you know, it was a decent budget. Um, how much do you think Remo Williams cost? If Back to the Future was 19, and that looks terrific. And this ran out of money at some point as well. 10? $40 million. What? There's no way that translates to the screen. What? This was a very expensive movie. Kate Mulgrew must be asking for some dough in the 80s. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. There must have been a lot of money going out the back door. Maybe to Fred, uh, Fred Clark. Maybe just the shooting locations, like shooting on the, you know, around the Statue of Liberty and stuff cost a lot of money. Well, I, I, that, I had tons of questions about that, which we'll get into with the review of the film, I suppose. But uh, were they actually on the Statue of Liberty? No, they had to create a replica for anything of him on the Statue of Liberty. Mm. Okay. So uh, maybe just, I don't know. It wasn't that expensive to shoot in New York in those days. Nowadays it is, but um, boy, I, I, I really don't know. Maybe just a lot of the stunt work. Like there is a lot of big stunts in this movie. You got me, honestly. I, I have no retort. I don't know where this money went, honestly. Yeah. So the budget, $40 million. The domestic box office, 14.3. One four. Yes. Oof. And this movie did not open internationally. So its worldwide total was $14.3 million. Hang on then. Why do I have a British title for it if it didn't open here? Well, it probably video cassette, right? Or home rental and stuff. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's such a disappointment. This movie is very American, and if it bombs in America, they're probably like, "There's no place for this overseas." Not when you have Dick Clark references. <laughs> so it landed at number fifty-eight at the box office for that year of nineteen eighty-five. Right between um, the movie Clue, which is another cult classic and actually mm. a pretty fun movie. And it was one spot above Return of the Living Dead, another cult classic that I actually really like. Yeah, I like both those films. Yeah, they're both really good. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, the top three for this year. We talked about this when we did The Man with One Red Shoe. But number one was Out of Africa. Number two, Back to the Future. Number three, Rambo First Blood Part 2. And some of the other espionage films on the list. At number 10, you had Spies Like Us, the spy comedy with Chevy Chase we'll be tackling some point in the future. Number 13 was View to a Kill. Number 52 was Falcon and the Snowman, which is a Sean Penn film. Number 76, Gotcha, a movie people have requested we cover, and I look forward to doing it at some point. And number 93, The Man with One Red Shoe. Oh, oh Tom Hanks. Yeah, yeah. I miss <laughs> Not you. one of his big hits. I yeah. miss you and your shoe. <laughs> I miss you. <laughs> Perfect. End the show. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um <laughs> this movie was nominated for an Oscar for best makeup. What? It it lost to Mask, the Eric Stoltz share drama. Wait. Hang. Okay. Oh, right. Sorry. I have to I have to sort of assimilate this information. So they gave a Golden Globe nomination to a guy, a, a Caucasian male in Korean makeup. 
correct. Uh, okay. okay. Yes, like Remo Williams was a box office bomb that went nowhere, but the awards circuit was really eager to reward Joel's Joel Gray's character. They really wanted that adventure to continue. I guess so. I guess so. That very problematic adventure. A mm. <laughs> um, couple other things I'll just note. Um, Christopher Wood, the writer, he kind of blamed this movie on Fred Ward. He says Ed Harris would have been a better choice. Um, I don't know. Sure. <laughs> what, what, what is his criticism about Fred Ward? He didn't have the charisma to pull off the role. So... I don't. Okay. I don't know about that. Well, I suppose we'll get into it. But that, that, yeah, we'll get we'll get yeah. into that. Um, there was also a Remo Williams um, TV pilot called Remo Williams: The Prophecy that uh, was supposed. You know, they wanted it to air in like the 1988 season, and it starred Jeffrey Meek and Roddy McDowell um, as the Korean character. So Roddy McDowell, folks, Roddy McDowell, that famous Korean actor. Uh-huh. Yeah, uh, that I'm never reading these books now. That pilot did not uh, air. It showed up, I think, at some point, like way, way later, decades later. People have seen it. Like, I think there's like maybe five or six reviews of it on Letterboxd. I have no intention of watching it though. Okay. Yeah, and we are going to be talking obviously about the Joel Gray character and the yellow face aspect, you know, going forward in this review. But I do want to just link. Um, check the show notes to an article by Walter Cha, and he, I think, can talk about this far more profoundly than we can. So he has an article called Remo Williams Never Became the American James Bond, but it definitely represented America for better and for worse. And he talks about the movie in terms of his own childhood nostalgia for the film. So look for uh, that in the show notes. Uh, it's, uh, again, a very well-written piece. And I think people who want to hear sort of a perspective that is maybe more appropriate than ours can jump over and read that. So that'll be on uh, Decider, uh, the website Decider. Okay, and the else can? No, that about wraps up Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. Well, let's end it. Hmm. Um, okay. Cam, go first. What do you think about this film? This is one I'd actually picked up at a thrift store on DVD maybe like six months ago or something like that. And um, I just never had watched it. And I thought, okay, well, let's watch this. I really didn't know anything about the Joel Grey character at all when I sat down to watch it. And the movie starts and it's kind of the crappy DVD transfer where it's like, it's been formatted to your screen at 4-3, you know, aspect ratio. Mm -hmm. And I was like, perfect. That's kind of what I want. Like, I want an 80s action movie that's set at 4-3. It feels like the sort of thing I would have rented when I was like 17 years old with friends or something. I, I like this. I'm getting into the vibe. I'm really digging the 80s score. Um, it's it's kind of like the perfect, uh, you know, lost 80s movie I had never seen. And then the movie proceeded to run. And my, my enthusiasm for it really just kind of slowly died. Um, once the Joel Grey stuff comes into play, it was like, oh, oh, this is this is uncomfortable. And, uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of this movie is spent trying to invest you emotionally in the relationship between Joel Grey's character and Fred Ward. And to me, like, uh, that's just dead on arrival because it's so awkward and uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, just in, in terms of everything to do with that character. And I, I thought Fred Ward was actually kind of terrible in this movie. Um, I think you want someone who really has the charisma where I care about Rima Williams and I want the adventure to continue. 
And he really just felt very flat. And I think that's really weird because I've liked Fred Ward in so many other things that I was just really shocked. He just seems kind of lost here. So like Remo Williams, I could kind of appreciate some of the physical stunts. It's so great to see practical stunts in a 1980s movie. Like that to me was the highlight. But this thing is paced like cement rolling down a hill. Like it is very slow paced, I found, and just uh, very lethargic and you know, going forward into this review, I want to talk a little bit more about the pace in regards to Guy Hamilton's Bond films. But what did you think? It's kind of hard to come back from that because you really hit a lot of the same points that I felt about it. I, I, if, I, As a whole, I was really digging the score at the beginning. And the score is one of the things I've got down as the things I enjoyed about this film. Yeah, and Craig Safin did the score. So let's shout him out. Craig Safin, good job. Thank you for that. Um but like, just it just slowly unravels as it goes along. You just think as soon as this whole the cop thing, he gets like fake killed, and then apparently he looks different in the hospital, but he looks exactly the same to me. Did you get that, Scott? How dare you? He shaved his mustache. <laughs> I'm waiting for the day when I, I chop off my uh, quarantine beard and my dog just gets completely spooked by the concept of me with a chin. Yeah. What have you done? <laughs> That's my dog talking, by the way. Um, no, but just, I don't know. I felt like the film wanted to be funny, and it wasn't funny. I felt like it wanted to deliver action scenes, and they weren't very impactful. And I felt like, again, like you mentioned about the connection between Remo and Chiun, they meant to have this sort of father-son bond, whereas they didn't mesh at all. And if that's the script or the cat, the actors, I don't know. But I didn't care about their relationship. Well... And I think that's what the film hinges on, because the bad guy is completely bland. Is this the blandest villain we've encountered on the Spy Hards podcast? Like, if you think about the worst films we've had so far, the worst film is Men in Black 2. But at least you remember Lara Flynn Boyle. There was also the Harry Palmer um, TV movies. Oh, well, Michael Gambon and his really bad Russian accent. Yeah, I remember Michael Gambon. He's memorable. Yeah, yeah. This, I think you're. I think this could be it. This could be our blandest cookie cutter villain of all time, so far. Yeah, I mean, even the dude Ed Begley yelling "strong, strong, strong" in Billion Dollar Brain. He's memorable. You remember that guy's face, and you know, oh yeah, the computers at least. But like, I there's, there's 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 it's kind of like two villains, but they work for the same organization. One's a general, and one's just a guy. I think like a senator or something like that. But I I kept confusing who was who. And I, I didn't know who was working for whom. I just didn't care. And so I didn't feel the tension of like Remo in danger. I knew he would get out of it because the adventure is just beginning. <laughs> um, and then you've got, you know, obviously the problems with the Chiyun character all the way through as well. And you, I have to try and think like in two minds. You've got it as like a 80s film. So if I'm sat in the cinema in 1985 in America, because it didn't come out here, would I have enjoyed this? It's like an action romp. Yeah. I, I don't think I... I'm trying to think of what 80s action movies were like at this point. Because stuff like Die Hard and Lethal Weapon, that comes in like two, three years after this movie. So like, what would I have been watching? I guess like you would have had like the Chuck Norris action films. Um, you would have had the, uh, boy, early Schwarzenegger. So you would have had like the first couple Conan films and maybe um, um, a Raw Deal. 
but like sort of the everything we think about as 80s action movies really kind of starts around that like 87 mark where you're getting like Predator and um, you know, that sort of thing. You would have had the Terminator, I guess, in 84. So there was the odd real bright spot, but I feel like a lot of it was kind of junky. Kind of junky. Yeah, we'll add that to the list of uh, criticisms on this film. <laughs> but I, I don't know. I just don't think that there's enough there to enjoy. So I think the cinema going people would have got bored. If they'd shown up. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the 10 people that showed up obviously got bored and didn't tell anyone else. But yeah, I just don't think there's enough there. And even with all the problems stripped out as, as if you're just taking it as a piece of the time. Yeah, well, I mean, this movie, um, boy, the training under Chun is, would you say the first hour? I think it runs longer. You get to that scene where he's like, is he meant to be hovering on the beach? I didn't really understand that. Well, that's a whole other thing in terms of the tone. But um, I, I wonder if this movie wanted to capitalize on The Karate Kid, which had come out the year before. So, like, the training does go on forever. And I was curious when it started, and I saw that Joel Grey was playing this character. I was like, okay, this could go one of two ways. They're going to try to create either a quote-unquote respectful Asian character. Because I think of, like, a movie like, uh, I don't know, Love is a Many Splendored Thing, which was an Academy Award-nominated film from back in the day where you had um, Caucasian actress Jennifer Jones playing an Asian character. But playing it very seriously, like, this is a movie about tackling racism. It's now completely outdated and ridiculous to watch. But at the time, there was like sincerity behind the intentions and the performance, at least. Or you go the grotesque caricature route, which is like Mickey Rooney in Breakfast at Tiffany's. So I was very curious to see which way this would go. And it's weird in that it seems to balance the two in that it does a lot of grotesque caricature, but also expect, expect us to emotionally invest ourselves in this character. It's very bizarre. And then you don't. Yeah, it's completely dead on arrival. And it's like, you know, I've seen Joel Grey and other things. I liked him in Cabaret. Scott, I don't know if you remember, we saw him at a Star Trek convention. (laughs) Did we? Yeah, he was there a handful of years ago. He guest starred on a Voyager episode and he showed up and did a panel. I don't know if you attended that panel. I went. Um, We did not get a Kate Mulgrew, Joel Grey reunion, though, at that convention. Did Did he try and tap on her wrist again? (laughs) <laughs> I do not recall any questions about Remo Williams at that convention. Yeah, I, I hope not to him. I mean, I almost want to ask her a question if I ever go to a convention that she's at again. Yeah, no kidding, right? Yeah. I'd love to hear what she had to say because Kate Mulgrew is a fiery personality and I would love to hear what she would have to say about this movie now. But I mean, I've liked Joel Grey and things, but it's the type of performance that no matter how committed he was to this bit, the performance is just dead. There's nothing to draw from it. Like, uh, it's completely a disposable performance that is, you can only say negative things about, so it wasn't worth the effort in the first place. Well, the thing is, he was correct in the beginning. Yeah. He shouldn't have taken the part. His gut said, don't do it, and he shouldn't have done it. Yeah, because I can't even talk about the Chiyun character as being interesting or effective because he's not. See, I, I didn't know about... The Karate Kid coming out the year before. I don't have years in my head like you do. Mm -hmm. So I can definitely see how it's trying to take some of those influences from it. But, you know, it's like he wants to be Mr. Miyagi in a sense, but also play it straight, whereas that film had some humor to it. Right. But then, and then obviously Remo is meant to make the jokes, but Fred Ward isn't funny. 
So what you have is just this sort of dead air where they're waiting for the audience to laugh. Well, okay, I'm glad you brought that up. Is Remo Williams meant to be funny? Because I felt like he sometimes was supposed to be funny. Uh, well, I mean, his first words in the film are, suck wall. <laughs> is that, I mean, is that he, funny? I don't know. I didn't laugh, but... He, he's introduced as sort of this lazy police officer, I guess, who's just like sitting in his car, ignoring calls, eating hamburgers. Um, and then he, you know, is brought into this cure organization. Um, I didn't realize it was called cure until about halfway through the movie. Mm -hmm. But um, it, it's sort of a organization that was founded by JFK. And they... Uh, conduct elaborate assassinations, kind of like the mechanic with Jason Statham, where the assassinations are meant to look like accidents. That's sort of what Cure's gig is. And he's inducted into this. And a lot of it feels like sort of the wisecracking agent who's supposed to be kind of undercutting all of the seriousness of the mission and the organization, but nothing he says is funny. <laughs> it just doesn't land. And you think like up until that point before he meets Chiun, he, he, you know, there's lines being delivered by um, a J. A. Preston's character, which is kind of like his handler, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. You're you're going to have terror for breakfast, pressure for lunch, and aggravation for sleep. You know, you're like, okay, this is kind of funny. You know, he got he got makeup done or whatever it is. But then as soon as this Chiun character turns up, I just feel like it. It's, then it is, as you said, dead on arrival. But it, there was a glimmer of hope at the start. Yeah, like, I find everything involving that hour with Chion, you're just waiting for moments that don't make you cringe. Mm. Like, that's it. And so it's like, Chion will have a moment that's sort of an emotional moment. You're like, okay, look, the actor's trying to get emotion across. Let's try to, you know, at least acknowledge that. And then immediately that's followed up with some sort of very racist commentary on Korean society. And I don't think, you know, we talked to when we did Condor Man about how they don't know anything about comic books. This movie knows absolutely nothing about Korean society whatsoever. Oh, so No, absolutely nothing. And the other thing I'll say about the, the Joel Gray's performance, which I think is more to do with the script than him, is, you know, by the end, you're meant to think that there's a relationship developing between Chien and Remo. Um, but during his training, the hour in the middle where he's doing all his training, he doesn't ever express any interest. He's just kind of like, oh, the Remo's here. I guess I have to train him. There's no like off-camera looks where he's like, oh, I wonder if he's okay to get the sense that he's a nice guy. He even says, oh yeah, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this. Yeah, and also Remo doesn't seem to care either. He's completely indifferent to all the, the training. It's very weird. And I want to also note, he's being trained in the um, Korean martial art of Sinanju. Um, I may be pronouncing that a little wrong, but um, nonetheless, it's fictional. It's yeah. not a real martial art. Yeah, he, even, he mentions real ones like uh, jiu-jitsu yeah. and karate and stuff like that, and just dismisses him and says, Sinanju is, is the best one. Okay, whatever. Um, yeah, but Rima doesn't care. Chien doesn't care. And then we don't care. And again, we get into that um, sort of the uh, the racism of um, Asian people having mystical powers because this uh, Sinanju martial art is completely magic. It's entirely... Yeah, you, yeah. Yeah, it's all based on like levitating apparently um a lot of like i can touch you with one finger and you know magical things will happen it's really crazy it's the type of thing i hate seeing in old movies that have martial arts like we are kind of um you know um we're spoiled now we get movies like the raid which have incredible martial arts i hate when i watch 80s action movies that have martial arts and it's like an awkward usually white dude like 
poking someone with a finger and then, you know, they fall down. This is kind of what I was pivoting off before when I spoke about the connection to Karate Kid. But like, it doesn't do anything with the the martial arts. There, there is barely any martial arts. Mm-hmm. If anything, it's all wire work and super genius dogs. Like, I, I, <laughs> I don't understand it. And, and, and so that, that kind of brings me into what you mentioned earlier, which is the tone. It's all over the place. Does it want to have... Is this a, is this a fantasy film? Is this a thriller? Do they want us to care about the espionage slash spy plot? Because I sure didn't. And this is where maybe we introduce Guy Hamilton to the proceedings. Because Guy Hamilton, he made Goldfinger. And people go, I mean, one of the all-time great Bond films, right? Like, if it's not your favorite, it's the one that, at least in terms of pop culture, has the most probably cachet, I mm-hmm. would think. Yep. Um, but he also made Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, and Diamonds Are Forever. And I like all three of those movies to varying degrees, but they do not have a strong sense of pace. They are very lackadaisical. They go on weird tangents. That's kind of what I like about them, honestly. But this is not the guy to bring over to a very, you know, this is a movie that I think wants to have a certain amount of of momentum. Mm. And Guy Hamilton, that doesn't seem to be his specialty. Goldfinger feels like the outlier of his Bond movies. I I hadn't noticed that particularly myself, but at least those later Bond films had Bond. So even if it was slow, you could be like, well, hey, it's Sean Connery. Yeah. This has Fred Ward. (laughs) Well, okay. And let's take another James Bond parallel here. Let's look at the movie Dr. No. Uh Dr. No introduces a somewhat unknown actor and creates a compelling story around him and invests a lot of characteristics into this bond character that we will remember shaken not stirred moments where he's killing dent like the assassin mode of james bond what does this movie establish you know just walking away from it you watched it twice (laughs) i mean all praise to you scott um what did this movie walking away from tell you about remo williams like do you have any sense of who this character is beyond like he knows like martial arts no I, I took a minute to think about it. I, I don't. I, he doesn't care about his country, and yet he does. Like, he doesn't want to work for The Cure. Uh, sorry, Cure. It's not the 80s you know, prog rock band. I would love it if he was in The Cure next to Robert <laughs> Smith wearing mascara. <laughs> this wasn't recorded on a Friday, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> but, I, yeah, he doesn't seem to care about that. He, he acts like he's above everything. Like he, he's too good for the situation. And then by the end, even when he's like in mortal danger or supposed to be in mortal danger, he's just brushing everything off. Why, why would anyone care about this character? Well, Guy Hamilton did direct the second Harry Palmer story. And that is an agent who, again, um, doesn't really want to be working for his agency. Um, he does care about the missions, though. And I think Harry Palmer is a much more specific character, whether you like those movies or not. I think you walk out of the Ipcris file with an understanding of who Harry Palmer is versus Remo Williams. Um, I mean, I feel like the Chian character with uh, obviously has a barrage of issues with that character. Um, he's the only one that has a specific personality in the whole movie, unfortunately, given the character, but Remo Williams is the one you, I would think, want to establish as a character you want to see the adventure continue with. Well, Chian is, is one-dimensional yeah. in itself, but at least he is the trainer. 
the the master you got that sort of stereotype that is what he is that's fine we understand that remo's meant to be our hero but he's so ill-formed i'm just trying to think in my head now what i would try and do differently to save this character in the film you've got to give him a personality quirk or something like if he is kind of snide you've got to make his snide remarks funny and make them really pop it feels like fred ward kind of mutters them like they don't have any sort of uh like fred ward can be very funny he's very funny in tremors or also in naked gun but it just feels he's so subdued in this like i don't understand why this character feels like he's half asleep so would you want someone who's just more animated then or just unleash the fred ward i know is there like it feels like they're playing him as very a lot of the time almost just like a silent action movie character which he just doesn't pop in because fred ward um you know, I don't know that I would say he's a great physical performer. No, he clearly does some of the stunts, as we mentioned earlier, and he's he's present in the scenes. But yeah, I, his delivery is flat, and I don't think that helps. I'm not sure about, I'm not sure what I would do to, to fix the film. I don't think adding a quirk or some personality would do enough to save the character. I think it is, it is partly to do with the actor. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I like Fred Ward in the films you've mentioned, but I just I just think it's a bit of a lost cause. I mean, is Fred Ward a lead? Maybe that's the question because a lot of the movies I'm citing, he's not the star. Tremors, Kevin Bacon is the star of the movie. Um, maybe Fred Ward is a supporting actor. Like that's what his strength is. And he really pops when you give him a strong supporting character, but building a whole movie around him, maybe that just didn't work. No, I don't think it did, Cam. <laughs> I, I, re- I love to like do yes and with, with our conversations, but I... I... I don't have anything more to say on how to improve him. And it just feels like such a, they've obviously got such a rich tapestry of information and, uh, and all these books to, to, to tap into all these things about this, obviously this big character who has 150 books. And yet what we get is, is, is beige. Is Remo Williams smart? No, but then he's meant to be <laughs> the best cop in New York. I guess, uh, but like you have that scene at the end where he like shows up at the bad guy's base and, um, you know, uh, meets up with Kate Mulgrew and gets brought right into like the villain scenario. And it's the laziest written scenario possible where it's just like, I don't know, this character just like wanders into the scene. Like there is no work done a lot of the time when it comes to Remo Williams infiltrating this espionage plot. And, and you have him meeting up for the second time with uh, Kate Mulgrew's character, Major Fleming, which that has to be an Ian Fleming nod. Um, and, oh, and yeah. Oh, it has, has to, to be. be yeah. has to be. But then she, he, yeah, she just says, oh, you, you must be military intelligence. And he just says, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no intelligence in Remo Williams. My name is Remo Sijin Smythe. <laughs> I mean, when your name came off of a bedpan, you know you've got problems. That felt very appropriate, by yeah, the way. Yeah, I only caught that on the second viewing, and that's probably my highlight. It's right at the beginning. Uh, yeah. Well, we touched on it earlier, but th- obviously this is meant to be a spy film. What is the plot, Cam? Tell me, what is what is the grand spy plot of this film? Well, there's like an evil industrialist um, who, who works, uh, his, or his name is George Grove, and he runs Grove Industries, although as a character announce, uh, pronounces it later, Industries. <laughs> um, and they are manufacturing AR-60 assault rifles that are faulty, 
Um, and there seems to be some sort of ruse about the harp um, safety network, or I'm not even sure what it would be called, satellite network, something like a defense system that's all fraudulent. And he just wants to make money selling faulty machine guns to the army, I guess. And that's how Kate Mulgrew's character starts to investigate this and how Rima Williams gets brought into this whole plot. Um, I mean, as far as, um, you know, spy movie plots, I guess it's fine. I don't have an issue with an evil industrialist who wants to make money. That that completely makes sense to me. But as you said, um, George um, Grove is played by Charles Chiaffi or Chiaffi. Um, this is like the most forgettable performance in the history of Spy Hard's podcast. So like, I have nothing to hold on to. So I'm kind of just left going like, whatever. I, I don't care because the thing is like the way they're introducing Remo into the plot feels like a shoulder shrug. So there's like no momentum to the story whatsoever. This film kind of reminds me a lot of what movies seem to do nowadays where they set up a sequel. Um, it feels like this film is devoted to setting up Remo and Chien. Yeah. And everything else is just there to ha- so there is a plot so the film can have a beginning, middle, and end. But really, that's not important. It's just about making Remo, Remo. Well, I mean, and you can say a lot of superhero movies do that, where the first film, they don't really do origin stories as much nowadays. But think of, you know, we referenced Doctor Strange earlier. That's a good example the movie is all about the training of Dr. Strange and the character of Cassilius played by Mads Mikkelsen, the villain is very one note and kind of just doesn't really matter that much in the scheme of things. But I think the thing is they make the training of Dr. Strange, the story unto itself. So that is interesting. And you have interesting personalities factoring into that. Like she would tell character, Mordo, um, that I could care about. That's the problem. Remo Williams, all the training stuff is pretty boring and then um, the villain plot, which that's fine if it's not the most fleshed out. It is an origin story, but the villain is so boring. You don't even have a charismatic actor playing the villain. And it just feels so just like off the shelf that there's just nothing to care about. It's a boring training plot along with a boring villain plot. Yeah, at least with uh, Doctor Strange, as you mentioned, the, the training is interesting. And obviously you can see his powers growing because it's more of a... It's more of a visual thing. He can like make the shields and then he can like teleport and all kinds of things like that. Remo's skills that he developed is semi running on water, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he can poke poke people really hard. And also we should note, Doctor Strange, the character played by Benedict Cumberbatch is far more compelling. And so he is the center of that movie. Yeah, oh, absolutely as well. Um, before we get on to like a, a, maybe a deeper dive into the characters, I do want to have a shout out to a couple of things I actually did enjoy about this film. Mm-hmm. I think I think we should do that. And I I mentioned the soundtrack at the start. I think that was great, which we we've shouted out to the to the creator. But the stunt work in this film is quite impressive at times. Yeah, like Remo Williams is kind of a gymnast, and so you get a lot of action scenes where, like, I really enjoyed the sequence where he's um, on scaffolding. And they've hired three evil construction workers to beat him up or kill him. Which I'll take a, I'll pause you for a second. Do you know how much that the, the, the bad guy paid them to kill this guy? No, how much was it? 60 bucks. <laughs> well, I guess these construction workers work cheap. So that's 20 bucks each. There's three guys. <laughs> hey, if I pay you 20 bucks, will you kill Tyler for me? 
Yeah, exactly. Tyler, friend of the show, we should say, who was on our Three Days of the Condor episode. Yeah, exactly. It makes no sense whatsoever. Um, And in construction, you actually make really good money. So I don't know. But that whole sequence on the scaffolding, I thought was fantastic. I love seeing stuntmen doing practical stunts in these movies. Yeah, and, and there were shots, as we mentioned earlier, that you could tell Fred Ward was doing it. Yeah. It's not like one of these like late um, Sean Connery Bond films where anything action is definitely not him. Yeah, and there was just moments throughout that scaffolding fight where it was like, oh, I feel like I haven't really seen this before. You know, I've seen people on scaffoldings or uh, people on, you know, h- you know, high situations having to scale down a building or something like that to their peril. But I felt like this one... It was just showing me some beats along the way that I just hadn't really seen. And I really enjoyed that. The only other thing that springs to mind in terms of stunt work is when he's hanging off the log, which is being dangled from a crane, I think. Which kind of reminds me of uh, Mission Impossible Fallout. But that film did it a lot better. Scott, did you understand how that log wound up in the air? No, 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 no. But by that last sort of 10 minutes of the film, both times, I was I was almost gone. Yeah. I, my eyes have rolled back into my skull. I couldn't follow anything. Well, it's a very underwhelming finale. And the movie also, it kind of wants to have exciting action, but undercuts it with so much cartoonishness. Like, I couldn't tell if this movie was trying to do Naked Gun style comedy because so much of the martial arts is played as, like, totally ridiculous. And, you know, you have, like, a sequence where he's stuck in a gas chamber and he's fighting this villain who has a diamond tooth. And he, you know, the guy's wearing a gas mask in the chamber kind of a fun setup i guess but um he pulls off the gas mask and uses the guy's diamond tooth to cut bulletproof glass and then dives through the glass and i'm like well this is clearly like a looney tunes moment but then i'm like am i supposed to be taking the other action seriously and being excited by it i have no idea the tone is really strange well because right before he jumps through that window he like plucks the guy's eye out with his finger yeah and I'm talking brutally as well. You see like blood explode in the guy's gas mask. And then he's like barrel rolling through a window it, all over the place. But Cam, I, I did want to make a quick mention. I, I would love to learn Sinanju right. for this one skill. Did you know if you become even a, a, a sort of adept at Sinanju that you could dodge bullets by spinning in a circle? I kind of like that gimmick. Um, you know, it, it's kind of... What? Well, it's just felt, like, different. I'm like, well, I mean, I've seen that in Wanted, I guess, with, you know, Angelina Jolie and James um, McAvoy. But I was like, oh, well, that's kind of d- interesting. I haven't really seen this before. If you're going to do, I guess, a fake magical martial art, that's something. Well, I, I get the, like, the Matrix-style agent dodges of bullets where they kind of, like, drop sideways and stuff. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But at one point, he's literally just, like spinning in a circle at a very slow speed he's thinking this guy's gonna get shot what is he doing well like joel gray is like trained in dance right like he was in cabaret mm-hmm. um he has a very strong sense of physicality so i guess you can say that's the one kind thing i can say about that performance is that joel gray physically can do some really impressive things um, i'm talking about fred ward i know that's what i'm gonna say get to fred ward cannot <laughs> Fred Ward is not a dancer. No, no, sir. He's not agile. It's like, you know, the movie Batman Returns is a favorite of mine. But if you watch, there's a scene in the streets where he's fighting two clowns. And we get this like kind of long shot of Michael Keaton 
basically crouching over and running in a circle. <laughs> and um, <laughs> it's the most clunky looking thing possible. But that's what Remo Williams reminded me of, was an actor who the camera is just putting him, they are not cutting away and they're like, come on, Fred, you got to pull this off. And Fred Ward is just kind of like awkwardly like lumbering in a circle. Spin, Fred. Spin. Faster. Yeah. And I apologize for using the term lumbering when we were talking about lumber earlier. Oh. Thank you. Thank you. That's a Remo Williams joke right there. (laughs) At least it got a reaction out of me, that one. True. Um, I did appreciate, this is a very small moment, the, uh, we were talking about the training earlier and the martial arts stuff, the moment where he's hanging off the Ferris wheel at Coney Island. I thought that looked pretty cool. Yeah, that was, that was the other one I was looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did make you wonder what the health and safety laws are like in the 80s, because uh, that was definitely the actual roller coaster on Coney Island. Yeah, it was, and it looked pretty badass. Um, I have a question, though, jumping off of Remo. He works for Cure. What did you think of the uh, Cure organization run under Wilford Brimley? Like, what did you make of the way they operate day to day? This organization can't get much done. Honestly, they have like one agent, one handler, and then Mr. Diabetes himself, Wilford Brimley. Uh-huh. Just staring at a screen, listening to computers, recapping stuff to him. <laughs> and-, and then apparently they'll kill themselves if they get caught. <laughs> I love that uh, in my world, though, um, no one's ever looking for them. And these guys just like clutching suicide pills while no one in the world cares who they are. <laughs> they, they probably were going to take that um, J.A. Preston's character to a hospital afterwards. But now he just cut his own oxygen off and just kill himself. <laughs> and they're like, who was this? Who was that man? We have no idea. <laughs> uh, we trying um, to help. Wilford Brimley had to expend so little energy for this role I kind of admire it. He literally sits in a chair watching a computer monitor for two hours straight. And every time they cut to him, he's, and it, it's the eighties computer, like jumping Jack flash Two, where it's getting a TV signal. So he's mm-hmm, like watching mm-hmm. streaming videos, which bullshit. Like I remember 1998 trying to watch the phantom menace trailer on a, you know, I don't know what type of computer I had at that point, but it was not easy. No, you, you have to wait 20 minutes just to get a you know five-second clip. That was the most underwhelming way to experience footage from The Phantom Menace ever. <laughs> I mean, it didn't really help the final experience, I did it. No, I just remember like I got a frozen shot while it was buffering of Padme's, um, or I guess Amidala's, silver ship. Right. And that was my takeaway from that teaser, because that was really the only image I could make out in 1998 so the fact that in 1985 wilford brimley is watching crystal clear almost 4k imagery on a computer monitor is absurd there's a i I watch a lot of red letter media on youtube Mm. and they uh they have a series called best of the worst i don't know if you've ever actually watched any of them but they basically cover like really bad b movies right and there's an actor that seems to appear in a lot of them and he, I can't remember the name of the actor, so I, this is a really bad reference. But basically, he just sits down in all of his films and like phones his performance in. But he knows he's in B, B movies, but apparently he had like some name value earlier in his career, so he just now does B movies. Oh, okay. Um, I'm sure someone listening will send us the name or we'll find it afterwards. But Wilfred Brimley's performance reminds me of that exactly. He would just turn up and like he'd probably have the script in front of him by the computer screen. And just be reading the lines. And I like Wilford Brimley. He's great in Cocoon or The Thing. But um, this performance does 
not have a lot of energy going for it, like the movie itself, I guess. Yeah, I, I, you said it earlier on, and I, I, it stuck in my head. It's dead on arrival. Yeah, and I mean the handler, um, McCleary, um, he's fine. Um, he's kind of, kind of your standard tough talking trainer, uh, or not trainer, I guess handler. But um, again, this movie it introduces all these characters, but doesn't do anything interesting with them. So like Wilford Brimley does nothing. McCleary, uh, I guess he goes on a mission, but it's not a particularly interesting mission. And he's got one hand, I guess. Does, oh, that's right. They introduce that later. And that ties into the Doberman story. And honestly, I thought those Dobermans were the highlight of the whole movie. I uh, My dog didn't like those Dobermans. I'll tell you that. But um, when they started doing like tightrope walking. <laughs> okay. I mean, the fact that they set it up where there's like, you know, um, Remo goes up onto like a scaffolding in this building. And he's like, haha, the dogs can't get me up here. And then we see two dogs jump up and pull down a fire escape with their teeth. I was like, I'm on board. I buy this 100%. These they dogs... worked in tandem. They worked yeah. in tandem, Cam. It was synchronized that these two dogs jump at the exact same time. It was like in John Wick 3, where Halle Berry has the two German shepherds that work in you know synchronized movements. That's what these two Dobermans did. Honestly, I, I don't know what the film is going for at any given point. It goes back to tone again. But these Dobermans, like... There is even a shot where the dog is considering going over the tightrope. Like the dog's actually thinking about it. They've managed to shoot it. So the dog's like, hmm. And then lo and behold, he walks across it. You can see that it's obviously like a matte painting he's walking on. But what? Does it want me to laugh? Does it want me to take it seriously? I know. That's the thing. It's like half spoof movie, half we want you to take this seriously. Because, you know, you have the moment where Remo, it's like right around that dog sequence, like a rat like runs up his pant leg. And he's pulling the whole, like, ooh, ah, ooh, ah, back and forth. And it's like, okay, it's like I'm watching The Naked Gun, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I, I I don't know what to make of this thing, Cam. There's only one more, like, good thing I want to shout out. And I think I'm going to start wrapping this up. Yeah. Um, the, the, I want to just acknowledge, like, going back just to Guy Hamilton for a sec. Diamonds Are Forever has the same kind of issue where, like, it's super campy. And I think what we enjoy about that movie, and I look forward to tackling it on the podcast, is the camp value and just how silly it is and how it lives in a world of camp. The movie Diamonds Are Forever doesn't ask you to really invest in the action sequences. And I think that's the difference here is that this movie wants to be really silly a lot of the time, but then wants you to care about very elaborately constructed action sequences. Well, it's also like the way that things like Diamonds Are Forever are shot. It's quite cheerful and colorful. Even the later Bond films that he did as well. Whereas... You know, that scene with the dogs, that whole infiltration into the the place to do a thing, I don't remember, mm-hmm. is is barely, it's, it's like all grey and black. You can't make anything out. It's dull. Well, I mean, in the 80s too, they switched to a cheaper film stock, so a lot of 80s movies look like garbage. And this is definitely, a, a uh, I think, a pretty good candidate for um, you know the title of garbage-looking 80s movies. Okay, so I had one... Shout out left to make, and then I have a question for you. Okay. The shout out is we've already mentioned her, but the only sort of character I kind of liked was Kate Mulgrew's character. Yeah, like I like that they are presenting her as a very capable character. You know, she's not a damsel in distress, although the movie kind of sidelines her later in the movie for sure. Um, but I like that early on she's very proactive in investigating this fraudulent harp 
um, network and that something's not right. I need to figure out what this is. And, you know, she goes to see her, her boss who makes kind of a patronizing, like, you don't have to try so hard. I don't care that you're a woman. And she says, well, I don't care that you're a man. You know, like, I like that she gets those kind of comments because Kate Mulgrew, um, going off Star Trek Voyager, is one of the great icons of Star Trek. Very important character in pop culture. And Kate Mulgrew has, like, an intelligence about her. I can't imagine ever casting Kate Mulgrew as, like, a dumb character. And I like that the movie doesn't try to do that. The problem I have, and I, I would say this is a on-the-page problem, because I think Kate tries her damn best of what she's given. Mm-hmm. She sells it as much as she can. Is it this whole like feminism point of view they're going with is just a veneer because then you've got the Chiun character, I don't know, making her climax with a touch of her wrist. Yeah. And he also has a comment to her where he says something like women belong in the home making babies or something. And it's I like, have it, I have it written down. I have the quote for you. Yeah. Women should stay home and make babies. Yeah. And you're like, great. Oh God. <sighs> Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I like Kate Mulgrew in the movie, but we should also just acknowledge this character doesn't really get even that much screen time. And they try to, like, inject a forced romance with her and Remo in, like, one moment in the movie later on. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, this is making my skin crawl because this is so unearned. And this character is presented as smart and he's an idiot. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just like, it's a, one of those characters that you can kind of say, well, like Kate Mulgrew brings a lot of fire to this character, but she's barely in the movie and the movie doesn't really care about her whatsoever. No, it's another one of those characters that actually probably had more. She could have delivered, but just wasn't there. There was nothing to to, to work with. Yeah, yeah. The opposite of Fred Ward, basically. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Okay, I have a question for you before we have the question. Okay. There's 150 books, you're telling me. Hmm. Or so. Um, they tried to do a TV pilot after this. Yeah. If you rebooted it and did it again now, what would you do and who would you cast? Okay. Well, number one, I'd cast a Korean actor as Chiun. Yep. <laughs> that's, that's that's an easy choice. That's, um, that's an easy one. But he, I, I don't... Okay. Maybe this is a larger question, but like, can you make this now? Like the idea of like the... Um, you know, the wise Korean martial artist training this like white secret agent. Like, is that something you would ever do nowadays? I feel like the only way they would do it would be doing something like Green Hornet did where the Green Hornets played as an idiot the whole time. But like, Mm -hmm. is that what an audience wants either? Because that's something that I feel like hasn't really worked in terms of audiences enjoying it because Green Hornet didn't do particularly well. Um, They did the same thing with Tonto in the Lone Ranger movie. Um, and, uh, audiences didn't really like that movie at all either. I don't know that that is even a shtick that, you know, they could approach that with, you know, in terms of reversing the power dynamics in that relationship. Um, I, I don't know. Like, that's why I do wonder, is this Remo Williams character salvageable in 2021? It's it's hard to say, uh, you know, I, I, I would, I would take your first thing. Obviously you, you have a Korean actor playing Chiyun, but you could play with the genders. Yeah. Um, you know, if you think about how, like, uh, no one liked this film, but when they remade The Karate Kid. I like that film. <laughs> oh, really? I, I heard it got, like, trashed in reviews. I never saw it. I kind of liked The Karate Kid remake. I thought um, Jackie Chan was fantastic in it, and the martial arts was actually really well done. Uh, well, that's what you got to do. It's right there. 
it's too long uh, for sure, but I, I mostly was positive on it. Well, they changed a few things. I mean, was was the Karate Kid a girl in this remake? Uh, no, it was um, Jaden Smith. There was a Karate Kid 4 with Hilary Swank, but I also want to acknowledge that the Karate Kid remake was called The Karate Kid. It was set in China, and he was learning Kung Fu. Ah. Right, so problems right there, too. It, it may be a bad... Uh... A bad analogy then. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think with all of these books, there's probably something there. There's something that must tap into some sort of zeitgeist in America that they want to hear these stories. Do they? Have you ever heard anyone talk about Remo Williams novels? I definitely never have. Just you, all the time. <laughs> I've never seen a Remo Williams novel in like a used bookstore. They didn't, they, they never trade them back in, Cam. They keep them forever. <laughs> Well, I do have a library behind me, and each one is, um, you know, <laughs> wrapped in um, dustproof plastic. <laughs> Your Remo wall. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, um, so we, you, you don't think a reboot is salvageable then? I mean, I think a lot of work is going to go into altering what the concept of the series is. And at that point, I go, why bother? Like, no one is screaming to the heavens, where's my Remo Williams update? I think we are. I think we're the only ones now. Uh, no, I don't know that I'm screaming for it either, honestly, <laughs> after watching this movie. Okay. I, I, I don't have any sort of follow-up notes, apart from the fact that I, I think this feels like a TV film. Yeah, well, it really does. And that whole finale on Mount Promise feels like the sort of thing in like a, I don't know, 80s action show like The A-Team or something, or Hunter. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, not to say that they were underwhelming, but they were a TV show. You just understood it for what it was. Yeah. It's just, it's cartoonish, but it's also like, you know, they said the budget was cut and I believe it because it looks cheap and you kind of end it. Like when he threw that villain over top of the Jeep and was walking away, I was like, is that seriously the fate of that villain? Like I was flabbergasted. I have nothing for you. <laughs> Honestly, I, I, this film, it doesn't even frustrate me like some other ones have. It didn't have anything to start off with, and it didn't deliver. Yeah, like I really thought when we would tackle this one, it would be a much more fun, uh, somewhat less problematic 80s action movie where we could really kind of like laugh at it the way we did. You know, we enjoyed watching Condor Man. Condor Man's way better than this movie. Um, Condor Man knows its tone. Uh, well, once it figures it out halfway through the movie or something. But um, <laughs> Condor Man is just a better movie. You know, there's a lot of 80s movies we've tackled that weren't great, but I feel like they just delivered something a little more. Remo Williams is just kind of, it's just flatlining throughout. I mean, it is like that guy cutting his oxygen supply. I mean, Remo Williams cuts its own oxygen supply very shortly into the movie. Or if they didn't, I'd do it for myself. <laughs> true, true. Okay, Cam? Remo Williams, the adventure begins. Is it making the knock list? 100% yes. How can you not put Remo Williams on the knock list? <laughs> no, no, no chance in hell. <laughs> I want to set fire to any knock list that this features on. Yeah, I mean, Remo Williams couldn't uh, land a sequel. He ain't landing himself on the knock list. This is a deeply bad movie. If the 11th commandment was thou shalt not get away with it, the 12th has to be thou shalt never watch Remo Williams. What is insane, though, was after I watched the movie, I'm like, okay, this is obviously a horrifically dated movie. And it feels like it would, would have been dated even in 85. But um, I went online because I'm like, okay, 
you know, this has to be a movie that people are angry about now, right? No. There are so many people that are still super nostalgic about this movie. It's crazy. And I don't know. I guess I've always had the ability to watch things that I enjoyed as a child and be like, oh, that doesn't hold up so well. There are a lot of Remo Williams fans out in the world, and I find it kind of crazy. I mean, there are crazy people out there, but those aside, I I don't know about these reviews, but anyone who can look back on this and and not see the problems, and and you could just take it for what it is, I think you're not really looking at it the right way. I understand nostalgia. It's a lot of what I consume in terms of media is nostalgia-driven, but there's a limit. And, and, And if it's a this big of a problem that we're having to address it constantly on this episode and, and quite rightly so it just shouldn't it shouldn't be allowed to continue you shouldn't really be enjoying this film well yeah i mean i i feel like this is a movie do you think it'll be lost to the sands of time like in a world of streaming networks and you know we've seen that like disney for example is struggling with what movies to put on their streaming network and which ones to you know not put on their period um and, you know, there's a lot of discussion now about, um, I know Turner Classic Movies is doing a series on problematic films. Mm-hmm. And they're looking at, you know, Gone with the Wind. They're looking at Psycho, Rope, um, Breakfast at Tiffany's. And the idea is to provide cultural context for these movies and explain why they have a level of importance going forward. Um, I don't know what you do with a Remo Williams where it's like a bad movie. And what are you arguing for, really? Other than I enjoy the campiness of it. So, like, I feel like this is a movie that is probably just going to vanish with with coming generations. I read Dr. No before we did our episode on it. And I mentioned on our review that there's a whole sort of chapter before the book starts from a sort of a scholar that just says, like, try and take it for what it is. It's a problematic book. There's problematic things in the book. Mm-hmm. But there's also some good stuff here. And they have to do that because it's James Bond. It's Ian Fleming. And you can kind of go, okay, fair enough. But this is Fred Ward. This is Remo Williams. No one's writing a precursor bit to this film. It it should just be buried. Yeah, it's the type of thing. I, I think it did get like a boutique Blu-ray uh, release. So uh, it's not even in like wide circulation. I think the DVD was out there, but the Blu-ray was not really. This movie is probably not going to be showing up on Netflix anytime soon. Um, so I I do think in a streaming world, it'll be kind of one of those movies that older film fans may talk about, but I can't picture a lot of 20 something year old film fans ever watching this movie. Well, I never gave you my answer just in case you were wondering, Cam. Hmm. No. (laughs) Yeah. It's a re no. (laughs) It's a re no from me. So, uh, yeah, it looks like the dossier on Remo Williams dead and quite rightly so is complete and filed as classified. Um, uh, Before we talk about what we're doing next week, we have a quick message from the team at Cinematic Blind Spots. Cam, roll the clip. Hey guys, I'm Adam. And I'm Josh. And And we we are are Cinematic Cinematic Blind Spots. The podcast where two movie lovers will introduce each other to a new film every week. No matter the year or the genre, nothing is off limits. Available wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow us on all the socials. And remember, whether you are in your car or in the theater, always check your blind spots. I mean, that's appropriate for Remo Williams, which was a cinematic blind spot for me. So check out that podcast to find out some more movies you may have missed. And hopefully they're better than Remo Williams. 
Yeah, so that's cinematic blind spots. You can, of course, find them on all major podcast apps. But Cam, what are we doing next week? Well, Scott, we are wrapping up another franchise. We are going to be tackling Jason Bourne, the final question mark, Jason Bourne film starring Matt Damon. I actually haven't seen this one, uh, which is odd because I've seen all the other ones before we, we reviewed them. So I'm quite looking forward to actually just finishing off the franchise, just personally, just actually to watch the last film. I never caught it in the theaters. Yeah, and we're going to be having the um, hosts from the Chicklet Pod on this on the show, and that'll be a lot of fun. I think we popped over and did Who Framed Roger Rabbit on their show. They're going to come wrap up Born with us, so I'm. I think this will be a really, really fun episode. Yeah, it absolutely will. So your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to watch Jason Bourne and join us next week. You can of course find the knock list at letterbox.com/spyhards, and you can of course follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week suck wall <laughs>